No one cares. No one gives a shit what you're doing, what your company does. Nobody cares. So you can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> and if you're the CEO, you can really do whatever the hell you want. And if there's anything holding you back, it's just you. Welcome to Product Market Fit, a show for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Brian Long, co-founder of Attentive, the mobile messaging platform that has raised almost $900 million and powers the vast majority of e-commerce companies. Brian previously co-founded Tap Commerce, which sold to Twitter for $100 million, and he recently published Problem Hunting, the tech startup textbook. I absolutely loved my conversation with Brian as he shared his perspective on product market fit, how they founded at Attentive, and lessons learned across both companies. We dive into trends in e-commerce and mobile commerce and get really tactical about early stage B2B sales and other growth tactics. Also, make sure to stay to the end for my new Founder Notes segment, where I'll provide the latest updates and learnings from my startup journey. As always, I'd love to hear from you, so email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out via LinkedIn or X. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now here's Brian Long, founder and executive chairman of Attentive. Hello, Brian. Thanks so much for joining. Welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So there's a lot I want to cover today, but I want to start with your definition of what is product market fit? Product market fit to me is when you feel like you have solved a burning problem. So you've identified a big burning problem. You have talked to the customers about the problem. You have iterated on different solutions and you have found a solution that consistently solves that problem. When you had actually solved that problem, then thankfully the rest can really take care of itself because you can then just go give that, give that solution out over and over again. Yeah. And I love how you broke it down in the book, really kind of specific parameters that as a founder, you can use to gauge whether or not you have it or you're on the, the right track towards product market fit. If you can kind of take us back to the early days of Attentive, I know that the company pivoted uh, along the way. Uh, you you had seen some success, right? You had some revenue. You had landed a big um, enterprise deal as well with that early iteration of the product. Um, but in your mind, it wasn't product market fit yet, and you kind of took the, the company in a new direction. Can you talk a little bit mo more about that moment in time? Yeah, of course. So we started out the business with a name called Franklin. And the problem that we thought we were solving was to help people to manage big distributed workforces. So people that work at a factory, for instance, or at a hotel. And we wanted to make it really easy for them to communicate and manage those people. And we thought, hey, let's, let's do all that via text messaging. So we built up a big platform to do that. And we went out and we sold that platform. And we got a couple people to say yes. But overwhelmingly, we kind of ran into two issues. One was that we had overinflated the importance of the problem. So it, it was a problem, but it was not a high priority problem for most of the executives we were working with. And then two, the product that we built really didn't solve the problem that, that these people had. 
right? Like it, it wasn't doing something really unique or special that delivered a wow experience. So although we were, you know, dragging some people kicking and screaming to, to use the product and sort of using strong hard tactics to close deals, it was not an addictive product that you felt like was really going to take off. But through doing a lot of these conversations, you know, I, I, one of the, the best things we did was very early in the, in the company history, we hired up a team of three or four inside sales reps. And we booked a tremendous amount, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customer meetings. And I, I personally did most of those meetings along with, uh, you know, one of our founding team members, Eric. And Eric and I did all these calls. And, and I remember distinctly one particular call where, you know, I was talking to the you know, C-level executive at a big hotel chain. And he said, you know, Brian, I don't want this to communicate with my workforce, but can we use this to, to, to book rooms? Can we use this to sell to the consumer? And that was sort of surprising to me because I assumed businesses already were using it to, to reach their consumers. But, you know, that, that made me think, oh, maybe this is missing. And I, and I started trying that out and, and testing it with, with other buyers. And like, oh, then you saw the excitement when, when you saw that they, they had a new way to drive revenue and reach customers. And, and thus we changed the company name to Lieutenant and where we really felt product market fit is we launched our first customer, this customer called bustedtees.com. And we went live on their website and they sold a, a bunch of different types of t-shirts and things like that. And we went live on their website. And I remember in the first 24 hours, we got like 250 signups and we sent a message to all the signups a few days later to so about a thousand people. Cause we are doing about 200 something signups a day. And when we sent it, um, somewhere around 330 people clicked on the link in the text message. And then of those 330, you know, we sold about 10 transactions that added up to, you know, let's call it three or 400 bucks. And it costs us maybe somewhere in the range of two or three dollars to send that text message. And when I sold that and I said, okay, we just spent three dollars to make 300. That's a great business. And that's when we, we really knew we kind of had product market fit because it, it, it was a real problem we had solved. Yeah. And a uh, really clear way how you frame it out in the book, you know, setting the problem statement with specific metrics and KPIs used to measure that problem, the solution that you're, you're presenting and uh, validating that hypothesis, which is what you did um, around, will people submit their uh, mobile number for messaging on the e-commerce site? Will they then open the, the text message that they get, the offer, and then will they purchase, increasing their, their revenue, validating each one of those uh, separately. One thing you said there that I found unique, hiring salespeople early on really goes, goes against the grain in terms of what the conventional wisdom is when you talk about B2B SaaS. Typically, everyone encourages the founder to do all of the sales until product market fit, and then you can start building out your sales team. You hired three SDRs early on, pre-product market fit, even pre-product potentially. How do you see that fitting in for the majority of founders and, and specifically in the B2B space? If you're going out there, you're pre-product market fit, why hire salespeople at that point? Well, I think that you need to be able to talk to a lot of customers, hundreds of customers. And they can't be just friends of friends. And they can't be a random assortment of people that you just run some ads online and they come in, but they're not really your target customer. You need to be able to talk to hundreds of customers that look like the type of customers that you want when you're a big successful business. So, you know, and, and, and why I call that out is sometimes people say, well, I can just run Google ads 
And, and the problem with running Google ads is you can, and you'll generate some, but most of the traffic you get from Google ads is super small business. That may be who your market is that you're going after, in which case, sure. But if your market is going after mid-market enterprise companies, you're not going to get them with Google ads. So I think having inside salespeople that can book real meetings with medium-sized to large businesses is really, really powerful. And in terms of actually doing you know, the conversation and the pitch once you are talking to them, I do think that's something that a founder should be responsible for doing. There, there is, though, I think, some magic to to having a salesperson that can do some of those calls as well for a couple reasons. One, buyers are a lot more honest with salespeople than they are with founders. When, when you, there's a certain magic when you're the founder and they're talking to you and they're talking about their baby um, and they, they go, I mean, this person's an entrepreneur and I kind of respect them. I don't want to mess with them. You, you may not get the full truth. When it's a salesperson, you know, people tend to treat salespeople like shit. And, and that actually is a huge benefit to you as an entrepreneur because they'll just tell salespeople, this stinks. I've seen this before. I don't want to, you know, this, this, that, that's all wrong. They'll give you the best critical feedback. So I often liked listening to the calls that a salesperson did. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and I'd even coach what they said and, you know, push the questions, whatever. But they didn't like see me, the face of the CEO, making it harder for them to, to, to give the truth. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Reading the mom test next, that's uh, coming up on my on my list. One that's been recommended along these lines as well, right? That people don't want to give you critical feedback. Everybody wants to make you feel good when you're when you're asking them. How do you though balance the um, kind of customer feedback, customer discovery conversation from trying to get that sale? You know, if you're if you're trying to get the sale, you're not really being impartial in asking them about their problem you automatically slip into selling, right? So I would imagine if, you, if you're, you know, delegating this to salespeople, they're all the more so going to fall into that trap. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that it is good to gravitate towards actually trying to sell something because you'll get more real information. But you know, it depends on where you are in your, your discovery process. I, I've also just found if you're not leading towards a sale, if you're not pushing towards a, a yes or no, then asking the person to give you a one to 10 score at the end one being I'm not interested at all, 10 being let's go sign me up is very helpful. I can't tell you how many times I thought I had an awesome pitch and I get to the end and think the person loves it. You say, how do you read it? And they look at you and they're like, oh, you know, it's like a seven or eight. That, that's like a one, right? When they say seven or eight, that means they don't like it at all. And I think that you, you learn a lot hearing that. Whereas obviously sometimes the barrier to have them, you know, write a check well, I want to see more of the product. Like they might, might ask buying questions, but that that still has the leading in like a nine or ten or even a high eight direction. Fantastic. So going back to attentive at those early stages, you saw signals of product market fit. You knew that your solution was providing value to the customer. From there, how did you start scaling up? What were some of the tactics and channels that worked really well for you, and what perhaps didn't work? Maybe some failed experiments in that department. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the things that that did work. Well, number one is reducing the friction to try the product out. So ha have a free trial. After a free trial, moving into a monthly program rather than having to have some financial commitment, paying based on usage. You know, everything you can do 
to avoid the person having to make a big decision. You know, if you can break down the steps of decision-making to smaller and easier to say yes decisions, then you're just going to have a lot more people reach the bottom of the funnel. Hmm. And if you force them to say, okay, at this point, you either have to agree to a $300,000 commitment or, you know, conversations over. That's going to run into a lot of walls. And that's why you see, you know, with a lot of more traditional SaaS selling they they have relatively low close rates. And that's because they really force a big decision up front. Now, the rationale for a while was, well, you know, integration and all this stuff costs us a lot of money. So we need to see that commitment. So, you know, that might be different from business to business. But but generally speaking, I think if, if you're worried about having a multi-step smoother sales process because forcing someone up front um, is going to lead them off because you're going to have high churn, you got a bigger problem. You can't make a product that doesn't churn like that. Mm-hmm. So were you looking at it as a freemium offering or just like a, a timed free trial or how did you? We did a time trial and that was great. So that was, that was huge. And then we look, we, we, I think one of the big things for us was focusing on the buyer's problem as being 98% of the sell. As an example, our company attended does SOS marketing, leader in SOS marketing globally. I think we just released over the last week for Black Friday, we drove billions of dollars in sales for over 8,000 customers, you know, billions and billions of messages sent. So it's big scale business today. But back when we started the business and started selling it in 2017, nobody wanted to do SOS marketing. No one. And no one was doing SOS marketing. I remember for like the first month or two, we were focused on putting our solution. Our email subject lines were like, did you know that SMS marketing can make you tons of money? And no one responded to that because no one wanted SMS marketing. We changed the subject line and we changed the first couple sentences of the email to say, did you know that there's a new channel that can drive you 20% more revenue? And, you know, hey, based on our estimates, we think you can drive, and we have a custom estimate, $8 million more revenue next year. If you try out mobile messaging, want to learn more, check out the free trial. Now, if, if you're a marketer, your job is to find growth, right? Your job is to find that 20%. So you're solving your problem for them in the subject line and the main meal content and get them on the hook. A lot of people would take that first call and before they got on the call, they didn't even know, you know, that the company was doing SMS based marketing, they get on the call. And then they'd, they'd say, oh, wait, this is SMS marketing. Yep but it makes all this money and then they were getting to it. That's, that's a really clever unlock because like you said, everybody wants to drive more revenue, right? That's, that's a universal goal for uh, for-profit businesses. I think we, we all saw and continue to see declining uh, email response rates. So unlock in hindsight, an obvious unlock, but leading with the problem as opposed to leading to the solution definitely kind of changed the perspective of the buyer, right? It was not obvious in that I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, I don't know, other businesses aren't doing it. So, you know, I shouldn't be doing it. And why aren't they doing it? Well, is it going to piss people off? Is it too aggressive? Is it not going to be big enough? Like there must be a good reason why no one else is doing it. That was, that was the problem for a while. It was just getting past that blockage and why other brands weren't doing it. Yeah. Going just for myself, I think that some of the hesitation was like, I don't want to receive them. So I, I, I expect my customers don't want to receive them either, right? Exactly. And I think that the, the other side of that, of course, was that, well, customers are only getting the ones that they opt into. And, you know, they, they're not going to opt into stuff like, you know, email where they just get hundreds and hundreds, but they, 
may have a handful of companies that they really want to opt in for. But at the end of the day, this is why free trials are great because you can say, look, I don't, I don't know your consumer, but try it out for a week and see if your consumer wants it. You may be surprised. And when we did that, the overwhelming, you know, very high 90 percentage consumers, you know, they would find a way I turn this on and, you know, tons of my consumers are signing up. Right. Leading with the, with the value messaging and the ROI, right? We're going to do a trial and we're going to show the ROI and then we can discuss the terms and you're going to see that profitability from there, right? When you started, did you hyper niche? I know that you started with e-commerce, but did you pick a specific vertical within e-commerce or a type of, you know, size of business? So let's say, you know, Shopify businesses that are between, you know, 10 and 20 million or something like that. We initially targeted sort of medium-sized um, e-commerce businesses. We, we, we knew that our DNA historically who we wanted to reach was more larger big market enterprise. But we all know that jumping straight to enterprise is usually very hard, right? So we, we, we kind of said, okay, we're going to get going with these sort of mid-market guys and, and then we'll be able to build on top of that with larger and larger mid-market into enterprise. So most of the companies we started with, we, we set kind of a, a minimum traffic target that we wanted a company to have in order to, to, to talk to them and work with them. And, and certainly in the early days for us, a lot of it was still manual. So we, we didn't want to have to service a customer that couldn't reach a certain size. We also were pretty conservative in the beginning. We were afraid of sending too many messages, making customer unhappy, whatever. So our models for how much money we can make from a customer were much lower than they are now because there was this assumption that a person would just not send them any messages. Whereas now, you know, people are much more aggressive. Got it. Attentive would incentivize people. I don't know if this was done early on or you guys introduced it possibly in the, in the heyday of ZERP, but you were paying people for sales, a sales call, right? You know, $100 gift card or whatever it was, other type of incentives as well. Is that a tactic that you, looking back on, do you think that um, it can work for many companies in that kind of mid-market sales motion? Or was that kind of a unique ZERP type channel that, that only worked at that point? Specifically, gifts and incentives uh, for sitting down for a sales call. Yeah, I mean, so for us, it was more of a question of what what are we willing to pay for a good meeting? What's that going to convert like for us? And then a recognition, too, that people's time is valuable. And you want to be able to, you know, give them value for their time without the risk. I think that being able to say to someone, hey, here's a reason, whether it's a free trial, free access to something, some sort of limited time offer, something to make it more appealing to them to give you some of their time, A. And then also later, B, one of the things we started doing was, hey, rather than having to agree to, you know, a 30-minute meeting with the sales rep, here's just like a two or three-minute simple pitch just for you. And if you like it, then you can say, tell me more. But if you don't, and, and whatever, you know, then you just lost two or three minutes. So I think, again, you know, we try to reduce friction, right? And let's face it, the barrier to say, hey, I want to go give 30 minutes or an hour of my time to a sales rep, that, that is a relatively steep bar. Because you know that the minute that you do that, too, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this call, but we all know what's going to happen after the call. The sales rep is going to ding me a million times. Send me all this stuff. I'm going to be on a list. They're going to be like pinging, 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 whatever. 
So the minute I respond, it's going to be nonstop. So I think any way you can, you can reduce that friction and not make the person have to take that step is very helpful too. So that two to three minute, was that like a loom that you'd send a... Yeah, like a loom or, uh, I mean, at the time, when we first started doing it, I'm not sure loom was even there. So we, 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 I think we might've been recording it in another solution, but like, you know, once, once loom existed, definitely. Fantastic. What are your thoughts on competition in general, but specifically as it relates to being a point solution, right? With SMS as a channel manager, oftentimes I'm thinking about it in tandem with email. So did you see the email providers from the get-go as your direct competitors? Did you think about adding email as a core component to attend to? And of course today, you know, most of the email providers have added SMS capabilities, right? How did you think about that from a competitive landscape? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think at the, at, at the core and up to a certain scale, you know, a business needs to be really great at one thing and, and focus on that thing. I think that there's so many examples of businesses that are trying to do too many things and they end up doing nothing great. <laughs> and that the generation can happen very, very quickly. So, you know, we've always at Attentive wanted to be the absolute best in what we do for messaging and had that be our focus. Now, we had a lot of customer demand for, hey, we love what you're doing in messaging. We want to be able to take the way that you guys are approaching journeys and campaigns and automation and AI and everything else. We want to take that to other channels like email or push or other things like that. And I think we looked really hard at, at other channels and decided back, I guess it was late 2019, 2020, that we wanted to be able to offer an email product to fit those consumers but not get away from being the absolute best in SMS. And, you know, I think we've been able to walk that tightrope really well, you know, and, and, and I'm no longer the CEO, I'm, I'm still the chairman of the board, so I'm close enough to say that I think that we still have the best SMS product of anyone leaps and bounds. And in particular, I think the work that we're doing in AI, I mean, we almost solve half of our messages at u- utilizing AI generation to create the messages for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So, you know, we, we've seen incredible movement, I think probably more than anyone else in the MarTech space in embracing, you know, what, what's available in AI today. And I think we're only going to see that accelerate into next year. So still think we have the best product in town with that product, but also an, an email product that consistently drives a lot more revenue, you know, than, than other email providers like Klaviyo that may be more focused on the, the sort of long tail small business provider, whereas we're, you know, building products explicitly for that larger mid-market enterprise customer. Got it. On the AI front, the content generation, is it for testing? Is it for personalization? Both? What, what primarily does the AI value bring to the product? Yeah, look, I, I think it brings all those things. Today, the reality is whether you're making an SMS or an email, it's still a pretty lengthy process. And speaking to what I was talking about before about reducing friction, we want to reduce friction for the, the user to be able to make it a lot easier. So the ability to generate content within the message super easily from AI, personalized you know, to that user, to that consumer, but also set up to be performing, right? To be able to drive the best possible response. And you know, the results we've seen are incredible, right? Not only does it make it easier for people to send messages so that they, they send more relevant messages and therefore enable drive more money, but also to drive much higher click-through rates and ultimately revenue for those messages. Always pushing towards that goal of, of increasing revenue for the retailer, right? We touched on AI, so, and you've been at the, the forefront of mobile commerce for a while now with uh, Attentive and before that with Tap Commerce. What are some of the big trends that you see or predictions as it relates to mobile commerce? Where do you see it going? 
I think that we're going to see a lot change in the form factor. What I mean by that is mobile websites, they kind of still look pretty similar to how they looked 10 years ago. And it's still all one size fits all. And I, I, I feel like that has to change with, with the incredible level of personalization that is offered, you know, through AI type experiences. Now it blows my mind that when you go to a website, it's still relatively the same website for everyone goes to it. And I, I think that has to change, particularly with a, a small form factor like mobile. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. I think, you know, kind of backing that up a couple other dimensions, I think being able to interact with that website more beyond just like looking at a picture and looking at a description, you should be able to get information answered very quickly on, on things. And I think you're going you're gonna to see that bubble up a lot more on being able to interact and ask questions and get better customer service slash sort of playing, telling a concierge type of support. And then finally, I think thinking about the checkout a bit, it's definitely got a lot better. That's probably the area of, of mobile that's gotten the tightest and obviously, you know, solutions like Shop Pay and Apple Pay have, have smoothed that out. I think we're going to see them become much more ubiquitous. They're, they're getting there, but, you know, I think we're going to see it just be on every site in the next few years. The form factor that you're referring to, do you think it's going to be chat-based? Is that going to be the, the primary kind of interaction back and forth? If you can, like, ask questions to an AI assistant, or what do you see that looking like? Not so sure. I, I think that'll be an option for getting help, for sure. But... Chat may not be the best way to describe what it's going to be because I don't think it's going to look like a, the way a chat window looks. And I don't think it's going to be purely text-based. And, you know, certainly like you think about it, it's kind of like going through the carousel pictures of a product, zooming in on a product, things like that. It, it's going to be tough to do if you're, you're thinking about a more traditional sort of like chat channel, if you will. And I think it's, it's kind of hard for people to work out the ontology of information within a chat. They want to be able to look at that organization at some sort of stem. So I think the point I was more making was like the site itself should be more personalized to me. And obviously we, we, we see some of that already happening in Amazon and people like that. When you go to the site, you know, what you see on the Amazon front door, there's not really a front door anymore. It's like a lot of shit for you. It's the front door. And I think that we're going to, we're going to see more and more of that happening across other sites too. What are your thoughts on TikTok native shopping? Is that a trend you see growing uh, on platform shopping, more of that kind of live QVC type auctions that has been really, really popular in, in China and elsewhere. Do you see that happening uh, at an increased rate? You know, that one's a little bit of a pickle. I, I, I personally made some investments in companies doing that. And I think it's, I think it's very interesting, but there's also a very different consumer in America than there is in China. And I, I don't think just because something's hot there, it's like a, a reason that it's going to be hot here, the, the same, the same way it wouldn't go the other direction. So I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, take the QVC example and then you're like, okay, but like, who's watching QVC? I'm like, like, is that, is that getting bigger or is that getting smaller? I think it's probably getting smaller. So I think it, it, it's super interesting, but you know, I'm kind of amazed when I go on Amazon and they look at their, their live stream QVC tech stuff and you look at it, there's just not that many people watching, right? Like I, I go to that, it's never a big number. Like you'll be on Amazon's front door looking at some live shopping thing and there's like a hundred people watching. Like, how is this possible? So I think that there's, there's, there's something there. I think it's also hard for a lot of businesses because it's, it's, you know, it's expensive to make content, video content, and it's even more expensive to do anything live streaming. And if you get like one skew, like what do you have? Just like one person talking about that thing every day. Like, is it really fresh or is it just like an ongoing recurring video asset? So 
I'm not so sure, but I think that it more importantly is like TikTok as a source of traffic and wherever the eyeballs are, where, where you want to be able to drive traffic from and then reducing friction. Hey, you know, when they go to my site, just like to tap that purchase or whatever it is from the TikTok store. Yeah, you know, that sounds pretty appealing for a lot of purchasing. So I think that you probably will just see more people, you know, complete their transaction in that environment. You know, rather than having to all the drop off that comes with going to another environment. Yeah. Did you see that video that was going around recently? It's uh, a Chinese influencer. She gets paid a ton of money to basically just run through these products that on a live video feed. She's opening a box for like half a second, <laughs> tossing it aside. The next box. I don't know if you saw it. I'm like, I don't know how that actually helps you sell anything. But apparently, she gets paid a lot of money to do that. I haven't seen that. I'll find that link. I'll send it over. Like, but that's an example of like why it's just the eyeballs, right? Like, yeah. why are people paying her for that? Well, they're probably paying her because there's some listing that it shows up in and there's a big audience she has and people like to watch it. And then they go to the things that are listed and they click on it. It's just driving traffic, right? right. So the, the marketer's job is staying relatively the same as it has been for a while, which is drive me traffic. <laughs> your job is to drive traffic at the end of the day. And maybe if you're responsible for site two, your job is to convert that traffic. But like, at the end of the day, drive traffic and... Hey, if you could just drive the sale right on someplace else, you know, that sounds great too. Yeah. With regards to traffic and AI, um, you know, a lot of people are worried about SEO and <laughs> what AI means for website traffic and long-form content. Any predictions or thoughts there for marketers and uh, startups in general, just like how to think about content, long-form content and uh, traffic in the future state where search might be AI first? Easier to make, harder to be different, harder to differentiate. So, you know, in a world where anyone can type in a few words and out spits, you know, a page of blog content or whatever, then it's going to create tons and tons of content, um, which means that the bar for content is, is just got a lot harder. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about Attentive. And prior to that, you had another startup, Tap Commerce, that you had sold to Twitter you had actually sold it two years after founding it, so pretty quick. If you can kind of fill me in on that journey, why sell so early on in the life of that startup? Obviously, it was, it was a success, right? It was, a, I think it was a $100 million acquisition, so by all accounts, a good exit. But why sell two years after starting that business? Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier around product market fit. <laughs> and I think that there were, there were kind of two concerns. We had one that was justified and one that wasn't. The, the just like concern that we had was the core problem that we, that we were exploring was how do we bring people back to a mobile application? And we had created a solution where by bidding in real time on a number of different ad exchanges, we were able to drive traffic. And, you know, people were spending millions of dollars with us every month. So it had grown from like, you know, for the first year of the company, it was a failure. And then for the second year of the company, it suddenly took off. And then all of a sudden we were making a couple million bucks a month you know, to a handful of customers um, that were using us to drive traffic to them. And there's customers like eBay and Spotify and other companies like that, right? And the problem was uh, that they wanted to drive traffic back at a certain rate. The issue with our solution is that we couldn't do it really well at that rate. Like we were struggling to hit the metrics. Like earlier I had spoken about how, you know, we were spending $3 to make 300 in SMS. That was clearly working really well. For the first company, Tap Commerce, we were spending $3 to make like $3. <laughs> you know? So that was kind of scary. 
And there's a big worry of like, hey, I'm not sure if this is going to long term, you know, sort of meet the goals, uh, meet, meet the metrics, meet the margins that we need. The other concern we had was around the addressable market size. You know, we initially thought, oh, we're selling a mobile apps, that's everyone's huge market. And then we ran a bunch of models that said, oh, you know what? For it to be a big enough customer that it matters for us, there's only like 500 customers. And we have like 100 of them. So we're worried that this business can never be bigger. Now, it turns out we were really wrong on that one because, you know, number one, the market kept growing. So the, the total number of potential customers grew a lot more. And then two, it turned our customers were willing to spend a lot more money as their audiences got bigger. And probably the best example of this is a company called Athlon that, that at the time was doing a bunch of stuff that was sort of similar to what we were doing. And, you know, they built that up in the behemoth, tens of billions of dollars company, public company, and it's, you know, awesome business. And, and I think I and the team have done an amazing job building that company. And, and I think, you know, they, they just, they saw the longer term view of where mobile advertising would go. I think that we also didn't have the confidence as, as operators. And like when it's your first time building a business and you haven't raised that much money and someone comes to you and wants to pay you nine figures to, to, to buy it. I mean, I don't know how these people turned that away on their first company. I was like, yeah, I, I jumped at that. So it was a, somewhat of a confidence thing. I think that it's partially that, but I, but I, but I think that in retrospect, Let's say we hadn't taken that deal and we had gone for it. You know, would we have been net net more successful? I'm not sure because I, I'm not sure that we at that time had the skills and the team and you know the position and the cap table and everything we needed to 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 deliver the way that that we, we should have. You, you certainly could have. I think a, a me now might do that better, but but me then I'm not so sure. Speaking of uh, fundraising and cap tables, a lot of second time founders will. Kind of try to raise less, uh, having gone through the dilutions in their first experience and realizing, you know what, maybe we should try to be leaner and even bootstrap. You went the opposite way with Attentive. You raised a lot of money from VCs and obviously it helped fuel the, the rocket ship growth you guys were on. Was that necessary for the business or the type of business that you were in? What went into that decision and the thought process around continuing to raise additional rounds of, of VC dollars? I mean, look, I think that it it, it translates into the type of business that you want to build. Often you're raising venture because you want to build a very high growth business and you want to do it fast. <laughs> venture is a shortcut to go even faster. Certainly it, it comes with responsibilities and it comes with the need to deliver on something that is high growth and, and all that sort of thing. But that was always the type of business that excited myself and, and, and the co-founders. So for us, it was, it was kind of a no-brainer to go do that way. And look, I have lots of respect for folks that, you know, bootstrap companies. And I think that they, they do a lot of stuff right doing that. And I think you can look at companies and say, oh, you know, look at, at Lazy and, and look at where they are. And, you know, they never raise a dollar. And certainly, you know, there's ex other examples like that that are oftentimes the, you know, the, 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 the odd ducks out there. But I even look at a company like Atlassian and I think to myself, okay, 50 billion market cap company today. But if Atlassian hadn't bootstrapped it and had raised more money earlier, would Atlassian be a $500 billion company? Because they were in the right place at the right time for a lot of trends. Great execution, great operators. But like, you know, if they had had more money and plowed into growth more, they talked about how they didn't hire salespeople for a long time. They got a huge sales force today. And there's a reason for that. But like, you know, they didn't do it for a while. 
If they had done and hired and pushed the Salesforce earlier, they might have grown and gotten a much larger market a lot faster. And you could go online. Maybe it would be, you know, hip chat would be Slack. So I, I think that there's there's a lot of stories that, that tend to talk about, oh, you know, people who didn't raise money and look at them. But in reality, I don't think we focus on enough how important raising venture is for the really successful business. For, yeah, for high growth businesses and even the success stories, right? To your point, could have been bigger successes. I also don't know why anyone has a negative view towards raising money and things like that. It's like, you know, there's, there's this view of like, there's something wrong with getting financing and raising money and, and people where is it bad to encourage that they have it. You know, okay, great. Like if it works for you, awesome. But I also think if you raise money and go for it, fantastic too. My view is that it's it's an option among many, right? So if you do it for the right reasons and you know why you're doing it, by all means, like amazing businesses are built with venture capital and a lot of businesses only can get built, right? High CapEx type businesses and other, you know, high growth businesses need venture capital in order to capture the market share, right? But I think that for a while it was celebrated as a milestone in and of itself. It's like, yeah, we raised a round. It's like, that's that's just the step. Now you got to go do something with that money. Yeah, there's no, there's no celebrating, you know, look, I think that particularly, I think in early stage financing rounds. It's nice to know that you can go go after your vision, and I think it you know deserves a night of a nice dinner and a you know toast because it's it's a trek to raise money. It's hard to raise money, harder, very very hard now to raise money. So I think it should be celebrated as an achievement because you've articulated the vision and a team that has you know gotten people to get behind you. And, you know you're, you're going to be able to go after that vision for a couple of years or however much money you create. So there is an accomplishment there, but certainly I don't think it should be lauded as some. Huge accomplishment. I think that later stage financing to me are are much bigger accomplishments because a later stage financing is a much higher bar than you know you you figured out a company is working at a massive scale and creating a ton of value, and that's why mostly uh, depends what you were talking. It maybe not the case in twenty twenty one or something twenty two, but typically I think later stage financing celebrate a company that has figured a lot of stuff out. And I think that's something that also should be should be celebrated when a company does that. Fair enough. Especially now, growth funding is so hard. Yeah, nowadays it's like impossible. So you're doing a growth, you're doing a growth thing now, I pay attention. I'm like, wow, well done. Yeah. What else, what mistakes did you make the first time around that you avoided the second time? And perhaps what which ones did you repeat or which new ones did you, did you make on the second one that, that you didn't come up in the first one? Man. Uh, tremendous amount of mistakes. The, the first time around, I think we we really were on a sprint. We really were on just thinking about what's happening this week, this month, maybe next month. But it was a very very short time frame that we had in mind, and I think that's why a lot of our decision making wasn't you know amazing. We changed on that a bit with the newest company, but I think as I do new companies now, I have a a longer term outlook. And I think as you've lived it a little bit, you know, like I, I was the CEO and, and, and founder of the tenant for starting in 2016 and, and, I, and, and I moved to sharing the company, you know, in 20, summer of 23. So was, was there for about seven ish years. And I think when, you, when you've done something for that longer time period and you see what can happen over that time period and what sort of, you know, goalposts and, and angles you can take, it becomes a lot easier to imagine that in other businesses that you make. You know, whereas you know, the idea with my first company of like doing a hundred million in revenue was like just insane. 
or how long it would take to get to them. You're like, how long is that going to take? 10 years? Like, that's crazy, you know? So I, I, I think that you, you gain a lot of perspective to have, not, not, I definitely don't have patience, but I would say instead just having longer term perspective. That's my the first thing. The second thing I tell you, and this is a much better, I bought myself some time on that first one, but this is a much better answer. No one cares. No one gives a shit what you're doing, what your company does. Nobody cares. So you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you're the CEO, you can really do whatever the hell you want. And if there's anything holding you back, it's just you. You are making the decision to hold yourself back. You are deciding what you want to do every morning and, and you can change it and, and totally change it. And you know what? No one's going to stop you. So I, I, I think that that freedom of action is something that I, I didn't appreciate until you know, the last few years or something. And then I'd also say the no one cares thing. I realized that no, no one cares thing after I sold my first company because I sold my first company and no one cared. And, you know, in your mind, maybe you have this idea because we all live in our own little TV show where we're like the star of the show, right? You're I, the extra. Exactly. Like, like you think you're the guy, you think you're like the center of attention, whatever. And, and you sell, you know, and you, I sold my company in this instance. And I think, oh, sell the company, you know, you're going to carry around your shoulders. Everyone's going to love you, whatever. And then you realize like, Hey, actually no one cares. And like in the grand scheme of things, like yours, your, your acquisition is forgotten, like literally the next day, which in the case of ours, I remember we got acquired by Twitter and I was supposed to go on CNBC and like talk about it and, you know, and like talk to some talking head and it's the story today and be on the trader's desk in Bloomberg. And I was like, you know, thought it was going to be a big deal. And then they, they like paid me literally the day I was supposed to go on and then like, Oh, actually, Twitter just announced that they hired Anthony Noto as CFO. So we're actually going to have him on the show. So we don't need you. But, you know, he might talk about your acquisition, but like, we're just going to have him and we're not going to talk to you. <laughs> and I remember like, oh, wait, it's like, yeah, no one fucking cares. So I, I think it's important to, to come back to that. It's actually really great if you do, because then you can do anything you want to do. That's a really freeing message. I like that. I'm really enjoying this, but we're running out of time here. So we're going to close out with our lightning round. I'll ask you some questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Sound good? That sounds great. Awesome. What book, newsletter, and or podcast do you find yourself recommending most often? Well, of course, you should check out my book, Problem Hunting, the tech startup textbook, which provides fantastic set. I mean, look, I wrote this book because it's what I want to be, what I wish people told me. And it's very practical. It is, it's not entertaining. It's practical. So if you want to start a tech company and you want to know how to do it, it's in this book. It may be boring, but it's going to be in this book on how to do it. So go check it out. If I'm recommending other books, I love the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I think that's the best business book out there. Um, if you want to know how people act and are, it's in that book. The name's a little cynical of the book, but in reality, it's a great book. Go check it out. Love that book. I also love the author, James B. Stewart. I love his book, Disney War, Ten of Thieves. He's written a lot of really amazing books. So go check out James B. Stewart. He has a new book called Unscripted. Uh, that's, that's kind of like, um, if you took the show Succession and you made it into a book, that would be the book Unscripted. Uh, it's about Sumner Redstone and Viacom. It's, it's, it's a really, really great read. Fantastic. I'll have to check that one out. What's a common misconception that people have about you? From my experience as a CEO of a company that's, you know, going from relatively small to a thousand plus. And uh, you had, you, you brought up this like sort of misconception point. I think that there's a lot of conceptions that people have about the CEO of a company. 
that that person is kind of behind like every decision that the company makes or that that person, you know, has a certain viewpoint that then, you know, overarches to how everything happens at a company. <laughs> Having lived and breathed it, I can tell you, A, that's not the case. And B, the hardest thing about CEO is knowing what's going on at any given time at, at like multiple places in the company. It's hard enough to know what's going on in one place in the company. You know, I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to understand what was happening in like one or two places at the company. And if something would go wrong, they'd be like, oh, you know, what is Brian doing there? And I'm like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I, don't, I have zero idea what you're even talking about. So I think that's something else that I've just lived and breathed. Is this, and, you know, I guess it's like a broader life thing, too, where when you're growing up, you kind of like you felt like the adults and the teachers have it all figured out. They know what's going on. And then one day you realize with like one of your friends that does not have it together is like now a teacher. And you're like, and you're like, okay, that guy's a teacher. Holy crap. That's what the teachers were like. <laughs> it's kind of like that, but with CEOs too. Like <laughs> you might have this idea because there's this like, you know, publicized media thing they've done to make founders and CEOs and other people out to like be these omniscient people that know what's going on. But like I've met most of these people. They don't. They're they're normal people, and sometimes they're like not smart people. So so like you just know, figuring it out like the rest of us. Everyone is just figuring it out, man. Everyone's just figuring it out, and like we're lucky to know what's going on like ten percent of the time. So this idea that we have it all figured out is way off. Last one here. What is a core value or principle that you live by or try to live by? I'm gonna give you two answers. Um, and these were kind of the, the most important things to me and the core values for, for companies, as I'd say for me now. Um, one is this idea of defaulting to action. This is the idea that like every day you wake up and you decide to keep doing the same thing as an action. And also just being willing to go for something and try something. And if it doesn't work, great. But like, just go for it. And I think that, you know, so many people get paralyzed and don't take steps because they live in so much fear of failure. And this comes back to what I said earlier. No one cares. So just go for it. Take the shot, because if you miss the shot, like, you know, look at something like E16Z. No one is sitting there talking about how Mark Andreessen started Ning and raised all this money for Ning to take on the social network and the thing completely flopped, right? Like, you probably completely blocked that out of your memory, but there was a time that that was like his entire thing, right? But that was running E16Z, and you're like, oh, he's a legendary genius. You just got to fucking take shots at the net, right? So I think that's number one. And then number two for me is lots of laughs with like our rather big thing, which is like, okay, yes, we should be excellent. We should do awesome, whatever. But like, let's also make an environment that we're all having a good life in. <laughs> like, like, and that doesn't mean work-life balance for sure. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't work in a startup unless you, if you don't like work, you shouldn't work in a startup. If you don't like work, you shouldn't start your own company. Because it's not going to be less work. There's a ton of jobs out there where you can work not that much to do really well. So I, I think that you got to love that work component. No, what I'm speaking about is like being able to have fun and work around with people and, you know, have a good time. That's really important to me and other people to, you know, to, to be able to have that, that lightness and, and fun within what we do. I love that. Brian, thank you so much for all this. really enjoyed our conversation. If you can close us out, with how can people be helpful to you? How can they reach you if they want to continue the conversation uh, and anything else that we may have missed that you'd like to share with the audience? I'm going to drop a link to your book in the show notes and any other links that you want to share with, with the audience. I highly recommend the book. I enjoyed it. Like you said, it's very practical. It breaks down each part of starting a startup and, and getting to product market fit and each 
each piece is, is broken down really simple to understand away. So I highly recommend it for, for any early stage founders. But yeah, Brian, it closes us out. Yeah, really, my, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, if you want to get in touch, just hit me up on X, Twitter, formerly Brian C. Long is what you can hit me up at and shoot me a message. Uh, and, and I'll take a follow too if you want, want to give it. I don't tweet that much, but when I do, it's kind of okay. And I'm happy to help anyone that's, that's out there trying to figure out their own startups and things like that. Fantastic. Thank you, Brian. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Let me know your thoughts by dropping me a note at hello at pmfpod.com. Now let me introduce Founder Notes. As promised, as I go on my founder's journey, I'll be sharing learnings and updates. So here goes a quick thought about Teal's Law. With the recent OpenAI drama, corporate governance is on everybody's mind. On that topic, David Sachs recently tweeted about Teal's Law. Coined by Peter Teal, it states that a startup messed up at its foundation cannot be fixed. I'm thinking about this in relation to my startup and some of the trade-offs I have to make in its formative stages. A memory from early childhood is weighing heavy on me. In the 80s, my father had taken a company public on NASDAQ that was built atop an invention he had developed. At the time, his technology and science skills surpassed his legal acumen, and the board took advantage of that, pushing him out of his own company. This was a formative experience for me growing up, and as you'd imagine, I'm thinking about how to avoid such potential betrayal in my own company. One mechanism for that is super voting shares, also known as dual-class stock structure. This can ensure founders retain voting control of their company, even as their ownership share inevitably dilutes. This is famously how Mark Zuckerberg retains over 60% of the vote at Meta, despite only owning 13% of the company today. As attractive as that sounds, unfortunately, it can significantly hamper fundraising efforts down the line, especially for founders who don't have significant exits under their belt. Having a structure like this will often turn away potential investors, or at the very least, have to be unwound at the behest of interested investors down the road. This brings to mind the three times rule, that anytime you do something non-standard with your startup setup, you pay for it three times in legal fees. First, you pay your lawyer to build it into your setup. Second, you pay for the VC's lawyer at the time of fundraising to review the non-standard clause and scratch or modify it. And third, you often end up paying your lawyer again to undo it. That's true for anything non-standard, especially so for something as hairy as super voting rights. And yes, for those wondering about the second step, your startup is typically on the hook for the VC's legal fees during the fundraising process. Sounds strange, I know. That's it for today. If you have thoughts on this topic or have done or tried to do super voting shares, please let me know. I'll try to have a corporate governance expert on the pod soon to talk about this and related topics. In the meantime, there's plenty of other things that need to be done. Thanks for listening and joining me on this learning adventure. As always, wishing you rocket ship success on your startup journey.